family, friends, and neighbors, stories of murder and betrayal today on the Paranormal Podcast. This is the Paranormal Podcast with Jim Harold. Welcome to the Paranormal Podcast. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you today. And if you're watching on video, we you see we have a new look. We're working on that. And if you've not checked out the video, check it out at youtube.com slash Jim Harold. A new thing we're doing on the Paranormal Podcast. In addition to the audio version, we'd never get rid of that. So today we're going to break format a little bit. We're going to talk about true crime. Many of you know I did about... 200 episodes of a show called Jim Harold's Crime Scene, which is still out there if you want to listen to it. And by the way, if you like if you like this, let me know. Maybe we could revive that show, perhaps. But uh, today we are going to talk about true crime. Our guest, as you see him on the screen, is Richard Estep. And uh, he has a new book out. And it's called Family, Friends, and Neighbors, Stories of Murder and Betrayal. And uh, Richard... Richard is the author of 20 books, most of them in the field of paranormal nonfiction, but he's also made his mark in true crime with books like Serial Killers, The Minds, Methods, and Mayhem of History's Most Notorious Murderers, and The Serial Killer Next Door, The Double Lives of Notorious Murderers, and uh, this latest book, Family, Friends, and Neighbors, Stories of Murder and Betrayal. He is also a regular columnist for Haunted Magazine and has written for the Journal of Emergency Medical Services. Richard appears regularly on the TV shows Haunted Case Files, Haunted Hospitals, Paranormal 911, and Paranormal Night Shift. British by birth, Richard now makes his home a few miles north of Denver, Colorado, where he serves as a paramedic and lives with his wife in a menagerie of adopted animals, and we're always glad to talk to Richard Estep. Richard, thank you for joining us on uh, the Paranormal Podcast, although the, the topic isn't uh, paranormal per se. Thanks for taking time today. Hi, Jim. It's always a pleasure to be here. So let me ask you, um, on that subject, I always felt there was kind of a a Venn diagram and an intersection of people who are interested in the unexplained and uh, the supernatural and true crime. And it, it's obviously the case for you. It's a case for me. What do you think is behind that? Why do you think they're, they're the shared common interests? Well, I think that one thing is that most, both of them are case-based, you know, um, whether you're looking at a murder case or the case of a haunting. And I think it attracts people that are uh, deeply interested in the how and why of both of these things work. Um, what are the commonalities between them? What are the the signs and symptoms, if you will, uh, in each case? And I think that, that there is a, a great fascination with what makes a haunting kind of tick and also with the mind of a, a murderer. So when, it, you know, this is family, friends and neighbors story of murder and betrayal. And I, I believe there's some statistics out there that you're X amount of times more likely to be killed by somebody, you know, and I know you have to know those stats. So so what are we looking at there? So what what gets really disturbing with those stats, because you're absolutely right, you know, having written uh, a couple of books on serial killers, I think that they hold 
a perennial fascination with people just turn on any streaming service and the number of series you can see about serial killers kind of proves that point doesn't it but the the truth is that as scared as you might be of a dharma a bundy or a gacy you are overwhelmingly more likely to be killed by someone you know um what's i think most frightening about this though is that um certainly in the united states a female is 10 times more likely than a male to be killed by someone that they have had a relationship with and not necessarily a romantic relationship either. Hmm. Interesting. I'm going to throw something on the screen. You, you uh, asked me to do this and I think it's great. So we'll do this now and we'll do it later. But a lot of these cases do delve into domestic violence and you pointed out that's a great resource for people up on the screen there. If people uh, need some help, right? That's the national domestic violence hotline 1-800-799-SAFE. And yeah, it was, it was shocking, if not surprising, that domestic violence features so heavily behind family annihilation cases. Um, primarily, this is a crime of angry white men. I mean, let's call it what it is, you know, um, whether they're young or, or middle-aged, but angry white men. So domestic violence is, um, as we all know, it's, it's an epidemic. Working as a paramedic, I, I see this far too often. Um, there's a reason many of us don't like Super Bowl Sunday and, and sporting events and holidays. Hmm. We see domestic violence um, peak. So I would ask anybody that's watching the, the show or listening to the show, if you or someone you know is suffering with domestic violence, um, it can often end, uh, all too often ends tragically. Please reach out to um, the National Domestic Violence Hotline uh, 1-800-799-SAFE and help is out there and please don't hesitate to get help. And it's also available on the web at ndvh.org. When you're doing these shows in video, you forget there's way more people listening in the audio only. So I want to make sure we get that out there and we'll repeat it again at the end of the show. So what are the typical motives when it comes to uh, you called it, I think, family annihilation. I mean, when you think about uh, you think about the romantic end, a husband, wife, a boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, uh, you know, people that are engaged to be married or live together, those kind of things. You think about money. Uh, you think about jealousy. You think about all these different things. What are the motives for those who choose to do the uh, unthinkable? What are some of the most common ones? Well, you hit the common, um, if dare I say, classic motives for murder right there, Jim. The, you know, money, romance uh, are two of the most common. Revenge being another. With with cases of family annihilation, though, I think we run into many instances where the individual simply snaps. There is a a build and a build and a build, an escalation, and then there is often a precipitating incident. That straw that broke the the camel's back, as the saying goes, um, and then the individual snaps, and there is no going back. Yeah, that's uh, that's terrifying. So, I, I mean, that brings about a question of people will say, well, anybody that does these kind of heinous things must be mentally ill. How do you draw that line between saying, well, somebody's mentally ill, they're not responsible, they didn't know what they're doing, on the other hand, having accountability where is that line because to me that seems like one of the most challenging things about this whole situation it seems to me logical if somebody kills their own family yeah they they went they went at least temporarily insane 
But where is the line of like, well, we should give this person kind of mental treatment and those kind of things and be very understanding because they didn't know what they were doing? Or, you know, this is a cold-blooded killer and we ought to throw the book at them. How do, how do we draw those lines? Because it seems to me like a difficult thing to do. And the, the only answer that works is on a case-by-case basis. You know, the, um, the insanity defense was given to us by Dan Sickles during um, the 19th century. And if you're not familiar with Sickles, he was uh, an absolutely awful human being. I wrote about him in one of my books, in fact, on, on corruption. Sickles was a general at Gettysburg that nearly lost the battle for the Union. But he was best known for beating to death uh, his wife's lover, on the streets outside Congress in Washington, uh, and I believe was the first American to play the insanity defense card, because it often is a card that's played um, successfully in court and did get away with it. And the the legal argument was that, you know, seeing this man um, who had been uh, conducting a, a pretty public affair with his wife had temporarily unhinged and deranged him to the point where um, he was not held responsible for his actions. Now, when these individuals do survive, because many take their own lives, some are killed by law enforcement in an attempt to apprehend them, their motives can be varied, Jim. I mean, I'm thinking of the case of John List, who mm-hmm. is a pretty well-to-do individual in finance, in the financial realm. Um, List lost his job and had a big old mansion. You know, family lived the, the high life in this big old mansion. And he did not have the heart to tell his wife and family that he had lost his job and they were about to lose their home and about to seriously downsize. So he used to fake going to work in the day. Um, he used to um, go to the station, in fact, anywhere rather than home. Uh, and then finally, when he couldn't hide it anymore, he waited for his uh, his children to come home from school. He murdered them one by one. He murdered his wife, I believe, also, it was either his mother or his mother-in-law, um, set the house on fire and fled. Um, and List actually was gone and started a new life. He got away with it for decades. Um, was finally arrested in Denver after one of those uh, TV shows, yeah. which are looking, you know, they put out a photo fit of this is what John List would look like now if he was if aged, you know, appropriately. And a, a co-worker of his in his new life recognized him and turned him in. And List said that his reason for doing this, this atrocity for, for wiping out his entire family, was that he could not uh, he could not bear the shame of what he'd done. His family would be so traumatized by this change in their lifestyle that they just couldn't, they shouldn't have to live with the shame. Which, you know, come on. Well, I also wonder if it's an ego thing. You know, uh, you know I, I'm the big provider, I'm the big man on campus, and here I've failed. So rather than exposing himself for failing um, or maybe just bad luck. I don't know the circumstances, but he internalized it and said, I can't show that side of myself, so I must kill them, which is totally illogical, insane. Put whatever adjective you want on it. But uh, also, wasn't there, uh, and you may or may not cover this in the book, I don't know, but wasn't there a thought that he was a potential suspect in the D.B. Cooper case? I mean, kind of out there, but I had heard something like that. Have you ever Hmm. heard that? I had not, but now I'm going to go look into it. It's it's kind of amazing when I'm writing a book what I when I research what I don't hear about. Just as a quick off topic, I'm researching a book now about the paranormal and was writing about um, the Yeti, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I fin- I finished the chapter, and then uh, Aaron Monkey, who does the excellent law yeah. podcast, social media me, and he said, "Hey, isn't it crazy that Jimmy Stewart was uh, uh, supposedly smuggling in Yeti bones to the U.S.?" And I'm like, "Okay, 
wait one. <laughs> yeah, turn, turns out that's the thing. Um, and so it's amazing what sometimes you don't learn. But in the case of List, to me, the most telling thing is he didn't kill himself. He was perfectly happy to make that decision for his family to murder them in cold blood, supposedly for their own benefit, but drew the line at, at taking his own life too. So he couldn't even do what you know, what might have been considered the honorable thing in his case. And let me be clear, I'm not advocating for suicide, but a man who is weighing his options, even if there are a few left, you know, murdering your entire family should not be on that list, no. let alone at the top of it. No, of course not. And by the way, I just Googled it on my secondary computer here as you were talking. Los Angeles Times, June 30th, 1989. John List is one of any number of, a peop of people suspected in the D.B. Cooper case. So there you go. There you go. That That is cool. Yeah. And what's interesting, uh, List uh, did his crime in early November 1971, and the D.B. Cooper case happened in late November 1971. Again, hmm. maybe just a coincidence, but interesting, interesting nonetheless. It is indeed. And I've got to guess that that happens when you go down the rabbit hole with these cases. They lead to places that you you, you never expect, right? They, they do. I mean, one case that I would um, wanted to tackle, wanted to write about, we are on the Paranormal Podcast, so there is some overlap here, Jim, but it was Amityville. Oh, yeah. You know, um, and, and one thing that has stuck in my craw forever about Amityville is is not just the sheer commercialization of it, but the fact that what people remember isn't the tragedy um, of, of what happened to the DeFeo family. That first and foremost, they remember the the stories of the haunting, whether you believe them or not. Mm -hmm. You know, we say, we say the word Amityville, we remember the house, the eyes, the tales. We don't think about the fact that, again, an entire family was murdered in cold blood by one of their own. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And when, wasn't the one room all red? That was the idea that the one room was all red. That might have been part of the murder scene or something. I, I forget exactly. Was, I'm, shady. There, I'm shaky on it. There was a very small area of the place that was red. Much was made of it. Let's put it like that. Far more than there was any reality to it. And the red room, as it's called, barely worth the name and not connected with the murders. Now, you've done uh, multiple books on this subject of true crime and murder, particularly murder by people you know. Do you yeah. believe that anybody can – I guess I will ask two questions. A, can anybody kill under the right circumstances? B, can anybody kill in cold blood? Two different questions, I think. It's a great question to ask. I mean, so let's approach it from a couple of different ways. Yes, we all have the potential to kill. We are fundamentally animals, even the very best of us, you know, and uh, animals, when provoked sufficiently, will respond violently. Um, it doesn't matter how genteel you may be. I believe we all have that capacity within us. Some people have it under more control than others. Some people are quicker to temper, of course, than others. And um, we've all experienced that that feeling of usually it's something like road rage, right? I'll certainly admit to this. When somebody cuts you off, flips you off, just shows that blatant disregard for safety and that lack of, you know, respect to everyone else on the road. It's easy to get that flash for just a second, isn't it? Of right. I could drive you down, run you off the road and teach you a lesson. But yeah. of course, we restrain ourselves as the better angels of our nature, right? Most of the time, anyway, there are circumstances in which people are extraordinarily provoked. And I think um, a case can be made for those being mitigating circumstances sometimes. A lot depends upon the um, extent 
that the situation escalates out of control, though. But the military has been in the years for business of taking um, everyday men and women and training them to kill. Mm -hmm. Right now, the idea is that it can be done in term in a good reason, but part of that comes down to depersonalization. You know, one doesn't think of of the soldiers on the other side as human beings like us. They are combatants. They are the enemy. They are targets. And and traditionally, that's a reason why soldiers have dehumanized the enemy with uh, with nicknames. You know, derogatory nicknames, right. which we won't repeat on air. But it comes down to depersonalization. But I do believe that. Everybody has the, the potential to kill if pushed far enough, fast enough. You know, it's really interesting uh, you mentioned that because I just finished watching, I was a little bit behind, a 20-year-old miniseries, Band of Brothers, which is excellent. Mm -hmm. And it tells the story of Easy Company that was at yeah. the forefront of Normandy. And they had little vignettes before each episode from the actual soldiers mm -hmm. at the present day of the time, the early 2000s. Many of them were still alive at that time. And one of them said, and I think in the last, uh, next to last episode, or maybe the last episode, you know, I've often thought that those 18 and 19 year old kids that I was fighting against, they were just like me in many ways. And maybe under different circumstances, we could have actually been friends. Maybe they like to hunt. Maybe they like to fish, you know, yeah. things I like to do. But here we were. Now, again, I give all the credit in the world to the greatest generation, and, and if there is such a thing as a just war, I believe World War II is about as just a war as you can get. When you're fighting mm -hmm. against the Holocaust in, in, in a country, trying to absorb countries around it and absorbing countries around it, I think it was definitely justified, at least in my mind. That's my opinion. Others may feel differently. But you get what he's saying. That plays very much into what you say. Is that, you know, if we're trained in the right way uh, and, and given the right justification, almost uh, almost anybody can kill, certainly to defend family and those kind of things. I think that's, you know, that's understandable. Now, let me ask you this. When it comes to these cases you've looked at, whether it's in this book or other books, how many of the cases are, okay, somebody snapped and they did something and then they tried to cover it up versus cold-blooded, premeditated, planned this out to the nth degree, had the story going, set up alibis. What is the breakdown between those two different scenarios? Well, I couldn't give you a percentage, um, but it's very noticeable when I um, have written about even some of the better-known serial killers. Um, I don't think they actually set out, or many of them don't set out to be what they become. So hmm. a, case in, a case in point I like to use is John Wayne Gacy, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Gacy's story, at least, and of course the man was a habitual liar, but this is one of the few things he said that I do believe. Gacy's story with his first victim was that he picked up this young man at a bus station, brought him home, um, they slept together, made sandwiches, and according to Gacy, the kid sleepwalked, the young man sleepwalked, came into his room with a knife, there was a struggle, um, the kid got stabbed uh, during the struggle, and Gacy buried him under the floorboards of his house. And the reason I find this credible, Jim, is that if you look at all of Gacy's other murders, 31, I want to say, they were murders of torture and strangulation. So he would kill via strangulation. The only stabbing is the first one. Hmm. So his MO changed completely. But what I believe happened is after that first accidental death, of course, he panicked. He put the body under the floorboards and he's waiting for that knock on the door from the police. You know? Right. And he's sweating, and every time a car pulls up outside, I'm sure he was looking out of the window, and the knock never came. 
and he slowly realized with this young man decomposing under his floorboards, hey, I got away with murder and this is kind of awesome. This feels wow. kind of awesome. And that's when they begin the stalking, the planning, you know? Um, I've always wondered, had, had Gacy stayed home that day, had never gone to the bus station, had, had picked up somebody else, you know, if the circumstances were just slightly different, would we ever have had the serial murderer that he eventually became? I mean, we probably would have had a sexual predator and an assaulter, absolutely. But would he have become a serial killer? Or was it just that there was that one accidental incident which sparked off the firestorm? It makes you think these uh, cases, they are disturbing uh, yet fascinating. And we'll be back with more with Richard Estep right after this on the Paranormal Podcast. The Paranormal Podcast is brought to you by Parabox. And Parabox is made for people like us who love the paranormal. And once again, we're joined by the mastermind behind Parabox himself, Jim Hamilton. Jim, so glad to have you back on the show again. Could you explain to the folks the concept behind Parabox? Our designs are as diverse and as intriguing as the supernatural world itself. From mysterious cryptids like Bigfoot and Chupacabra, to chilling ghost stories, haunted locations, and even mind-boggling topics like Area 51 and alien encounters. We've explored a lot over the last seven years, and guess what? We've only scratched the surface. Imagine wearing a shirt that not only features a cool design, but also kickstarts conversations about these mysterious topics wherever you happen to be. It's like wearing a piece of the unknown that keeps the intrigue alive. Well, I'm absolutely amazed by how intricate they are. We love adding those sneaky details that make you do a double, triple, or even a quadruple take. Think hidden symbols and subtle nods that only the sharpest eyes will catch. It's like wearing a piece of art that spins a paranormal tale. Each shirt design contains a password that will unlock our monthly challenge. And hey, not only are our tees a visual adventure, but they're also super soft and comfy guaranteed to become your new favorite in no time and really the t-shirts they're a game too like i mentioned before every shirt we send is basically a puzzle in disguise and at parabox it's not about wearing a puzzle it's about diving into the thrill of solving it we throw in clues codes and visuals that will put your mind to the test plus each t comes with a handy content card explaining the theme and pointing you towards our monthly challenge and trust me, each month is a new adventure, with some months being trickier than others. If you're clever enough to crack the challenge, you could score yourself some pre-Parabox merch. It's like a monthly brain teaser with a chance to snag some cool gear. Simply put, Jim, I think people just need to get Parabox. And you've got a special deal for them, right? Absolutely I do, Jim. For all your paranormal podcast listeners, this one's for you. Use the code JIM20 at checkout and you'll snag a 20% discount on your order. That offer is not only good for our paranormal tees, but for our national park shirts as well. Also, be sure to follow Parabox Monthly on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok for more paranormal content, as well as contests and giveaways. So head on over to ParaboxMonthly.com and use promo code JIM20 to start your paranormal adventure today. That's right. Go to ParaboxMonthly.com and take advantage of that great deal. Thanks, Jim, for taking some time out of your very busy schedule. Now I know you're going to get back to designing more great shirts. No purchase necessary to be entered into their monthly drawing. You can find all the details at ParaboxMonthly.com. Thanks, Parabox. 
We're back on the Paranormal Podcast. Our guest is Richard Estep. We're talking about his new book, Family, Friends, and Neighbors, Stories of Murder and Betrayal. And we're so glad to have him with us. It's a disturbing subject, but there's no one we'd rather talk about it with than Richard Estep because he does it in a very tasteful and a very informative way. And, and to that point, Richard, other than, you know, I mean, these are interesting cases, but I also think there's a value in getting this out there. When I was doing the tri a true crime show, I kind of struggled with it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, is this really kind of sensationalism and those kind of things? Mm -hmm. But I, I came down to this thought. If one person hears this show and they lock their doors and some madman tries to get in and they go to the, you know, they, they pass that house because the door was locked. Mm -hmm. If that happened one time, over the several years I did that show, the 200 episodes, it would have been worth it. So I think there's a cautionary tale perspective. I think there's an educational perspective in terms of understanding, maybe trying to figure out why these people do these heinous acts. What are your thoughts? Why is this uh, an important exercise to look at these cases? Yeah, thanks, Jim. I, I'm a big believer in, I, I'm not interested in writing for titillation. If if this is your kind of subject because you, you get off on it, please avoid my books and never buy another one. And also go get help. Um, I think trying to understand this is, is, is what the point of, of me writing these books is. I just finished writing last week uh, a 110,000 word manuscript on World War II. Um, where I try and understand, you know, how the world gets involved in a conflict that big. Um, understanding how murders happen, whether it's serial predators, whether it's the family annihilator, if we can spot the signs, um, then just possibly they can be derailed or some of them can be derailed before they ever happened. And one thing that I do hope people take if they read this book or any of my true crime books is there are usually multiple steps in the narrative where somebody could have intervened and derailed a tragedy. There is usually something someone can do that would stop this from happening. Um, and tragically, it never happened in, in, in these cases. Do you think, uh, I mean, and, and we talked about a little of this offline, but do you think mm -hmm. that you've run across cases or things perhaps where maybe sh people should have stepped in and they kind of look the other way? Do, do you see that kind of happening maybe just saying, I don't want to get involved in those kind of things? Have you, have you come up with instances where, you know, somebody really should have said something. Yeah, there there are numerous instances in all of my true crime books of cases like that. I mean, a good example is uh, in my first serial killers book, Dr. Harold Shipman, who is Britain's uh -huh. most prolific serial murderer, was only finally caught when it was realized that the, the sheer number of death certificates coming in on Dr. Shipman's patients was, was extraordinary. And um, somebody said something. Could, could it have been derailed prior than that? Yeah, I absolutely think it could have been. So I think we all want to stay in our lane, right? We all want to kind of uh, mind our own business to an extent. But there are times when when you simply can't as a matter of conscience. And I will add just, just to, to piggyback on that though, Jim, there are cases as well, particularly in this book, when the system failed, um, that individuals were uh, put on a restraining order and because of the mental pathologies at work, they stepped right through them and ignored them. So we see cases in which stalkers particularly uh, are called out and the appropriate steps are taken and the system isn't rigorous enough in protecting the people it should have. I also think there's got to be cases where people aren't believed. 
you know, somebody says this person is a threat to me, this person is dangerous, and it's kind of like, yeah, oh, you're 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 exaggerating those kind of things. It kind of plays into what you just say, but I got to believe that's part of the picture too that that happens where people simply aren't believed and then they end up dead. Absolutely. I mean, going back to uh, uh, excuse me, Jeffrey Dahmer, there, there there is the very well publicized incident in which the police found one of his victims bleeding naked rectally in the street um, and accepted at face value the explanation that it was just a lover's tiff. You know, it's it's just unbelievable. And our willingness to believe somebody, I say our, I mean um, the general willingness, is often colored by um, judgments about them and their lifestyle. Um, so if the person involved is a sex worker, if the person involved um, is an addict or experiencing homeless or is on the fringes of society, they are often treated as less credible than the, you know, quote unquote, respectable individual who lives in the suburbs and has a career. Now, uh, is there, I mean, I'm sure there's multiple, but are there one or two cases that really stick out in this book, either maybe things you didn't know, or they were even worse than you thought, or, or just some that stuck out for whatever reason? Uh, do, do you have any examples, any thoughts on that? Yeah, one that one that fascinates me perpetually um, is uh, the Lizzie Borden case. Mm -hmm. um, simply, simply because it's one of the great what ifs of American heck global, you know, true crime literature. Um, I think it was Bill James, the author, who said uh, in his excellent book on true crime. You know, he said it's impossible to see how Lizzie Borden could have carried out the murders. And then his next sentence was, "It's impossible to see how anybody but Lizzie Borden could have carried out the murders." You right. know, so so looking at that conundrum and something that if you if you go online today and of course, you know, never read the comments. Right. But if you go online today, the defenders and the persecutors of Lizzie Borden are as vociferous now as they were back then, if not more so. She has an army of people that maintain she could not possibly have done it or that she was guilty as sin. You know, I just saw something, and I don't believe it's in this book, but I just saw something that uh, there's a group working to try to get truth in the Lindbergh kidnapping case in the subsequent uh, murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. And um, it amazes me. I think it's a double-edged sword. I mean, you've got these kind of citizen investigators, citizen detectives who are out there trying to get to the truth. And there have been cases where actually they have taken DNA information and been able to break. There was one case from the late 70s up in the Pacific Northwest, and I can't remember the name of it, but literally it was a, a citizen detective using DNA uh, who broke the case after you know 40 plus years, which is amazing. But then you get people who go on these uh, you know, social media sites and Reddit or wherever it might be mm -hmm. and start accusing people of murder, people who are mm -hmm. alive. Yeah. Um, so it seems to be a real double-edged sword. How do you, how do you feel about that and the proliferation of true crime, crime podcasts and that sort of thing? Well, I think firstly, when it comes down to the armchair detective or the citizen detective, um, I don't want to denigrate them. So I don't know what the correct term is, but you're right. It's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, there are cases in which they have kept cold cases alive for years or reinvigorated co interest in cold cases, um, which they are doing an absolute service to the victims' memories and to their family members, you know, by, by not letting this fall by the wayside and be lost um, to history. On the flip side, um, they are also generating a lot of smoke that 
police have to wade through detectives have to go through this kind of stuff and it takes time away from their actual investigative process they generate a lot of false leads and i do believe it's many many more false leads than valuable valid ones in yeah. such cases so again a double-edged sword certainly their hearts seem to be in the right place and they do make a contribution that's valuable on occasion but how much are they detracting from the actual official formal efforts you know so mm -hmm. i i really i really um see the the value of them in in keeping alive cold cases and even if it's just the reminder that we're not going to let some of this stuff go yeah so yeah. but yeah stopping short of accusations um is is something that should be happening though and it's it's very easy to libel or slander somebody right and and that can have consequences for both right sides. I mean, the thing was, when I was doing a true crime podcast, I always kept in mind my journalism classes in college. I didn't, I got a degree in uh, undergrad and grad degree in communication, but I wasn't technically a journalism major. But at least I had some classes where it's say, you know, you don't make false accusations. You don't make unproven, you know, when you're talking about a case, the person is accused until they're convicted. And there's so many people out there uh, putting out media, whether it's podcasts or video or, you know, write just people sitting at their keyboards writing on forums and they don't mm -hmm. understand just the basic stuff about journalism and they're essentially become citizen journalists, but with none of the training and they just go out and make these. And there's been criminal cases where people have been gone after in civil cases, I think, I think civil cases, the people have been gone out <laughs> Correcting myself, I believe they've been civil cases um, where people have been gone after for, you know, slander, libel, those kind of things. So, I mean, I think it's something we have to be very careful about and remember that even the accused are innocent until proven guilty. I think that's so important, even if it looks totally like a slam dunk. You know, they were they they were found with the gun in their hand, you know, the smoking gun until they're convicted by it. A jury of their peers, they're still innocent until proven guilty. I think that's a very important thing. You know, I, I, I've broken that rule myself in at least one major instance, and I, I'll, I'll tell you about that if you like, but sure. I agree with you. And that was the Fox Hollow Farm murders. Um, when I wrote my book about Herb Baumeister, the I-70 Strangler, uh, and the horrors of Fox Hollow Farm, Baumeister um, murdered anywhere between 11 and 19 men. It, it's still unclear. But... Um, uh, he killed himself, uh, shot himself in the head prior to um, trial, let alone conviction. Now, the overwhelming landslide of evidence points to Baumeister um, as, as the um, perpetrator of those murders. The bodies were all found in his backyard. I mean, it's a, it's a mountain of evidence. However, he was not alive to be put on trial. And part of me wondered if that book should have actually been, you know, I should have inserted the word alleged Every yes. time I said serial killer. And, and, you know, if you are strictly following the interpretation, I probably should have done. Um, in that particular case, though, there is not a shred of doubt um, that Herb Baumeister killed those individuals. So I do stand by it. But in other cases, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. We should tread carefully and, and get multiple sources. How many of these uh, cases are kind of a generational continuation in other words, the murderer uh, has been subjected to abuse and those kind of things, mm -hmm. and that has led them to do what they do. Not that it's justified, but it is part of uh, part of a motive. 
I mean, that does play into certain cases, but it's also intriguing to me that you see instances in which one of the, you're dealing with siblings. And so they're raised under equally abusive circumstances. One of the siblings becomes something monstrous and the other doesn't, you know, um, a, a good case in point um, in which children uh, had every opportunity to be this way was the Cromwell Street House of Horrors in England, uh, Fred and Rose West, who I'm sure you're very familiar with. Mm -hmm. They subjected their children to the most appalling physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. And yet those children grew up and um, struggled to have a productive life. Fred West's son looked so like his father, and he was, I believe, a plumber, couldn't find work because he would knock on the door and the customer would open the door and just be horrified because wow. there is this vision, you know. So um, I find it very interesting that in so many cases, if you would expect anyone to turn out, um, much like, you know, the, the abuse of the parents, it would be those kids. And, and they went on to, I won't say lead happy lives, they were haunted and tormented through no fault of their own, but they certainly did not go on to commit um, the, the atrocities their parents did. So I, al I almost see these individuals as the perfect storm of circumstances, you know, Jim? A number of factors have to align in order for these monstrous things to happen. And sometimes it stops short by just one or two things. Um, sometimes everything falls into place, unfortunately, and another tragedy takes place. Was there a case that you weren't aware of before you started this that blew you away? Kind of like, wow, it's like this is uh, extremely uh, impactful. There were several, and I'm just kind of perusing the contents list as a reminder as we go through because I wrote the book a year ago, you know. But sure. in terms of in terms of being impactful, I think that the one that made me um, really sit up and take notice was the Parker and Holm case, which if you if you saw the movie by Peter Jackson, um, I believe it was Heavenly Creatures or Beautiful Creatures, I forget which, um, but uh, it was the one in which you had the two young girls in New Zealand who ended up murdering the mother of one of them because they were going to be split up and they were living in this joint kind of fantasy world that they had created together. Yeah, that's... That was the Parker... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 go ahead. That, I, I mean, that is uh, that is interesting. That is very, very interesting. Well, go ahead. But, but what interested me more was in this particular case, um, they were split up afterwards, of course. They went on to live completely separate lives um, both of them moving to the UK, move, uh, changing their identities. Um, one of them went on to become a trainer of horses. And so for, for, for decades, uh, kids would come and they would learn to ride horses at her stables, having not the slightest inkling of her background of who wow. she was and what she'd done. So, you know, it, it's very easy in many of these cases to see the neat ending with a bow of the killer is, is thrown behind bars for life or is sent to, uh, you know, the electric chair or takes their own life or whatever, or they rot in prison. But there are those cases in which they are actually out and about uh, and they receive their freedom and they're getting to be a little bit more common. I mean, uh, another one that came up just recently was Gypsy Rose Blanchard is the name yes. of everybody's lips right now. Yep. You know, she is in the book. That case is in the book. Um, although she didn't actually wield the knife herself, um, it's it's very clear that she massively enabled the murder that her then boyfriend is still doing time for. So to see her on TV doing social media chats and Q and A's right now is it's almost surreal to me. Yeah, that that does seem very very strange. 
Very strange. Uh, a case uh, that always fascinated me, and this goes back to like a TV miniseries from the 80s or early 90s uh, about Jeffrey McDonald. And, you know, he had been in the U.S. military, uh, you know, at a time when, I mean, it was Vietnam era, if I remember. So there were many people who, yeah. who you know, had problems with the military and the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. But many people, I would say that, you know, probably support of the military was in some ways higher than in terms of if somebody was in the military, they were respected. And so you got this young officer and his family ends up killed. If I remember correctly, and this is a very foggy memory. Um, the idea was, is that he kind of pinned it on a Manson-like gang yep. that killed his family. And that's interesting, too, because here you have, you know, potentially someone who killed his whole family blaming mm-hmm. uh, uh, another set of serial, a set of serial killers, which is like a kind of very kind of meta thing. Uh, that McDonald case, though, that always fascinated me. What did, what did you find about that one, uh, I know it's been a year, but uh, that's that's mm-hmm. one that no. I uh, stood out for me. He's the known as the Green Beret killer, right? Yeah. And he was, um, I believe, a doc with the Special Forces group. Uh, and so his whole story was essentially that he was asleep one night. And as you say, this Manson-esque group breaks into his uh, into his house on base, you know, on a military base. They yeah. get access to a military base. Uh, they come in, they beat him, and then they go murder his his entire family. But he survives. And the thing that strikes me most about that story, Jim, is if you are said murderers, you kill the biggest threat to you. You make you you deal with them first, but you deal with them most aggressively, right? Because you do not want this Green Beret trained special forces doctor um, at your back still alive when you're going to murder the family, right? It makes no sense. So the fact that his injuries, although ser- serious, were not life-threatening, it was almost suspiciously so. Hmm. You know, I, I do believe McDonald self-inflicted some of those injuries on himself. If you look at the wounds to him versus the wounds to his family members, there is no comparison at all. Um, so he survived. He got well. He stuck to this story. And I will say that he has always stuck to this story. And he pursued appeal after appeal after appeal as high as possible. And he is now out of appeals. He cannot... He cannot um, uh, get released. I I never found his story convincing at all. I just don't understand how he expects people to believe he suffered such minimal injuries and was left for dead, and yet his family were so horrifically murdered in the same house by the same people. And interestingly, the person who portrayed him in that TV movie was Gary Cole, who most people would probably know him from the movie Office Space. He was the boss in Office mm-hmm. Space. He was also uh, played the Mike Brady character in the Brady Bunch movies. And I think now he's mm-hmm. on CSI. So he's gone on to uh, be in a lot of different uh, vehicles. He's a, he's a really good actor. But uh, anyway, uh, be that as it may. So I. Uh, in doing these books, how has it changed you and your thoughts about these killers? Did you go in with one set of perceptions and it came out the same at the other side? Or has it evolved over time? Has it informed your philosophy about it and, and Richard Estep's thoughts on killers and murderers? Certainly this book. Um, 
I, when I look at the serial killer books, there's no way you can remotely empathize with the people in those books. You know, you are dealing with people who are fundamentally broken, who, who, who need to be locked up, who are not fixable. What struck me most when I was writing this book was how in a number of the cases, we keep coming back to anger, Jim. And, and I think that's something we can all relate to, you know, uh, whether you're looking at the news, the state of the world, it's so easy to get angry these days. I think far easier than it ever has been through various factors that we're all aware of, right? Um, at social media does it to us. Yes. You know, the, the, the media does it to us. We are primed to become angrier people. And in these cases, I think a number of them, I'm not excusing anybody in this book, but anger flared up and it ended in tragedy. And it's interesting. I was recently talking with, uh, do you know Jeff Belanger? Oh, yeah, um, I know. I know Jeff. Well, yes. Wonderful guy. A wonderful yes. author. And um, I was interviewing for a book I'm writing about demons. And one section of the book, well, I've written it now, it's in. But one section that I wanted to talk to Jeff about was this whole idea of the devil made me do it. You know, mm -hmm. um, th this, this, this classic defense of I wasn't myself, I was possessed. And Jeff said something very astute, and it does relate to this topic. He said, if you were to go to any federal penitentiary and talk to some of the people that are in there for these kind of crimes, before they did what they did, a lot of them were probably John and Joe, uh, excuse me, um, John and Jane Q. Public. You know, they were no, really no different right. than all of us. Right. But there, there, something flared up. The wrong set of circumstances caught them at the wrong time on the wrong day, and they exploded. And he said, "We're not literally saying they were possessed, but the devil being anger that for, for a couple of minutes, or maybe even just thirty seconds, something else was driving them." And we're not talking about a literal demon, Jim. We're talking about rage. We're talking about being temporarily incited to the point where you are no longer the rational, thinking, kind, compassionate person that you are most of the time. You are this monster, this animalistic expression of rage. And I saw that over and over again in this book. And it made me look at, I think anger is one of the biggest problems facing our species right now. Maybe the biggest. Um, because it's at the heart of all of the bad decisions or almost all of the bad decisions I saw made in this book and that we see made on the grand stage in life. And really, you kind of have, uh, I mean, more so than the average true crime writer, other than maybe someone who is has a law enforcement background, you kind of have a unique perch because, as you had mentioned before, as a paramedic, you see the aftermath of some of these things, whether it's, you know, full-blown murder or if it's something, you know, like beatings and, and those horrible kind of things. But you see it up close and personal. You're not just reading about it in books. You see the real-world results on this stuff. Absolutely. And as I said, you know, we see spikes in violence after major sporting games. We see them on holidays. Um, go to any alcohol, go to any emergency department on a Friday or a Saturday night, 50% of the people in that emergency department are there with alcohol as a factor. Wow. And I don't mean, I don't mean that they're intoxicated necessarily, but I mean that somebody got angry in a bar, you know, and decided to, to beat down on them in a bar, mm -hmm. things of that nature. So yeah, I do see the aftermath of, of this. And unfortunately, far too many people are living and dealing, um, with, with chronic rage related issues. Um, go ahead. No, 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 no. I'm going to say, and also many of them are suffering quietly. You know, there may be no obvious sign. So I know we talked about this earlier, but 
seeking help if you feel like you're threatened, there is an escalation from verbal abuse through emotional and psychological abuse, through physical abuse. Um, and ultimately it can end in homicide, you know? And the, the, the most tragic thing is not just the, the, the homicides of adults, but when children who are absolutely blameless um, are also dragged in and are killed, you know, it, it, it breaks your heart. It absolutely does. And you just wish something had been noticed and said to stop this before it happened. Indeed, wise words. And we have it on the screen here. And for our audio listeners, uh, if you're in a domestic abuse situation and add anything you want, Richard, um, there are resources. And one of them is ndvh.org, ndvh.org. Also, the phone number is 1-800-799-SAFE, 1-800-799-SAFE. Anything you'd like to add on that, Richard? Just a couple of things. One is that I would absolutely agree with you, Jim. And also, even if it's somebody you know, you know, encourage, give give this information to them. Lastly, the final four pages of this book are all resources for those who are suffering violence. Um, if you would like those resources, shoot me a message at richard at richardastep.net and I will mail you that list of resources. Absolutely no cost or anything at all. Um, but please think about getting help if you need it. Indeed, I think those are wise words and, and please do and use those resources. Uh, Richard, it's been a pleasure. Uh, congratulations on the new book, Family, Friends, and Neighbors, Stories of Murder and Betrayal. Uh, where can people get the book and more information about everything you do? Well, the book is available at all the usual suspects, um, Barnes & Noble, brick-and-mortar bookstores around the world. can be uh, purchased from online retailers as well. Uh, and if you want to say hi to me, uh, reach out to me at richardestep.net. Or any of my social media platforms, you can find me on Twitter, Estepar, Instagram, um, Facebook, Richard Estep Author. Excellent. Richard Estep, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for joining us today on the Paranormal Podcast to talk about something not paranormal, but certainly frightening indeed. Thank you again. Thank you, Jim. Uh, talk to you soon. And thank you for tuning in to the Paranormal Podcast. We appreciate it. And remember, we also have the video version over on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Jim Harold. And we would ask that you share the show. You know, this is my original podcast, the one I started off with in 2005. And certainly while it's a younger sibling, the campfire has surpassed it in popularity. I still have a soft spot in my heart for this show. And I really believe we bring some good content. And I think maybe sometimes this show gets lost in the mix when you look at the fact there are so many interview paranormal shows out there these days. But I think this show is a cut above and we want to raise its profile. So please, if you enjoyed what we did today, share the show with a friend today. We'll talk to you next time. Have a great week, everybody. Stay safe and stay spooky. Bye-bye.